previously on Flying the Line. The 1960 election of President John F. Kennedy opens new doors for labor in both aviation and other industries. And the promise of a new age spawns new ambitions for leaders and politicians alike. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 20, Charlie Ruby's Hour, Part 1. One theory of leadership holds that events make history and that specific people, no matter how famous, are merely bit players in a larger drama. The converse of this theory, sometimes labeled the great man thesis, holds that at a certain point in history, an individual emerges whose personality is so vibrant that they dominate the times and mold events. Napoleon, according to the first point of view, would have remained an obscure Corsican soldier had it not been for the French Revolution. The French Revolution, according to the second point of view, might have remained an obscure footnote to history had it not been for Napoleon. Of course, these theories seek to explain the complexity of history by simplifying it, but the truth lies somewhere in between. In 1962, Alba was entering what can be called its midlife crisis and Charlie Ruby seemed to most members to be the best choice for those particular times. In a sense, Clancy Sayan had been a Napoleonic personality, and 53-year-old Charlie Ruby was attractive at least partly because he seemed unlike Sayan. Or, to put it another way, Ruby was LBJ to Sayan's JFK a calmer man of an older generation, succeeding a more exciting man of a younger generation. If conciliation, tact, and the ability to build bridges between conflicting opinions and factions are prerequisites of leadership, then Charlie Ruby was doomed to failure. He was blunt and plain-spoken to the point of embarrassment. Add to that, his unwavering in a course of action once convinced of its correctness, Ruby was no diplomat. Perhaps these personality traits sprang naturally from his Quaker background, along with his abstinence from strong drink, strong language, and tobacco. But, as even his detractors admit, Charlie Ruby possessed a granite-like integrity and a bulldog tenacity. He wasn't showy or apt to overwhelm people with his verbal brilliance. However, Ruby had a native shrewdness and toughness. Of course, anybody who had grown up in the airline business dealing with Ted Baker at National Airlines was likely to be tough, but Charlie Ruby was exceptionally so. Was Charlie Ruby supposed to be a mere caretaker? marking time until Alpa sorted itself out? His initial mandate was to strengthen the association's precarious financial situation. 
Beyond that, Ruby was pretty much on his own, free to either push forward or hold the line. Alba was still in the midst of a period of severe internal discord, despite Saiyan's departure. The anti-Saiyan faction that had backed John Carroll of Transworld Airlines against Ruby was still poised to make trouble. So Ruby went slowly in certain areas as a necessity. The Southern Airways strike was still dragging on, draining Alpa's leaders emotionally and demanding nearly all their time. The crew complement issue was also going nowhere, as usual. This time, it was due to the Douglas DC-9 in the BAC-111. Alpa's treasury was hemorrhaging so severely that any president who saw himself merely as a caretaker would soon have nothing to take care of. Charlie Ruby was not constitutionally suited to preside over a period of drift. Although he didn't know his own mind as to the shape and direction of Alpa's long-haul policy, neither did the average Alpa member. The short-haul problems were enough to occupy Ruby completely at first. One thing he had to do without delay was to restore a semblance of harmony to Alpa's internal affairs, or at the very least, civility. Both qualities had been lacking during the latter part of Saiyan's tenure. The minutes of the executive committee during those days make harsh reading. The smoldering resentments of the American Airlines pilots toward Saiyan often flared into the open. Saiyan, stung and angry, often replied in kind, giving as good as he got. In such a time of crisis, the transparent goodwill and easy manner of a man like Ruby promised to diffuse mounting tensions. As it turned out, the task of keeping the American Airlines group within ALPA was beyond his abilities, but it was not for lack of trying. If Saiyan's personality was at least partly to blame for the American Airlines pilot's dissatisfaction, it made sense that his successor be as unlike Saiyan as possible. But those who thought deeply about such things knew that the new ALPA president must also be a battler, someone who could hold the center when the flanks were giving way. No one doubted that Charlie Ruby was a fighter, certainly not National Airlines boss Ted Baker, who had spent so many years with Ruby gnawing at his ankles. The questions about Ruby's capacity to lead ALPA arose not because he lacked the will to battle, but rather because the realm of politics, where the fight was likely to occur, was not Ruby's strong suit. When Charlie Ruby flew his last DC-8 trip for National Airlines on July 4, 1962, he ended an airline piloting career that spanned nearly the whole history of commercial aviation in America. The third ALPA president had been with National since its birth in 1934. And in a sense, he was a throwback to the Banky era. Charlie Ruby was a mechanic before he was a pilot. 
In the early 1930s, Charlie owned one of Florida's best automobile garages. His work was so good that customers brought more business than he could handle, particularly in his specialty, luxury sedans. But a career in the profession of auto mechanics wasn't Ruby's destiny. Fresh out of high school in 1928, he went to the school run by Robertson Aircraft Corporation in St. Louis to learn flying. In those days, the course included mechanical training. And since there were more jobs for mechanics than for pilots, Charlie, always practical, opted for mechanical work. Returning to Florida with an airframe and power plant license and a smidgen of flying time, he tried to wrangle a pilot's job at Pan American. He got nowhere. Under one trip in its early days, Pan Am self-consciously projected an aristocratic image modeled on the military, and its pilot corps was practically an auxiliary arm of the U.S. Navy Air Corps. The idea of a kid with a high school education flying one of his clippers didn't appeal to Tripp. But he did need mechanics. At the same time, Charlie Ruby went into the auto repair business. As a sideline, he also ran a little aviation repair shop and bought and sold a bit on the used airplane market. In the process, Ruby learned about the flying game the hard way and met the man who would later become his boss, George Ted Baker, the founder of National Airlines. Baker was dabbling in aviation in the late 1920s before moving from Chicago to Florida. His primary interests had been the automobile business, but he also owned a non-scheduled outfit he grandiosely labeled the National Airlines Taxi System. After moving to Florida, Baker resurrected it, but with no more success than he had had in Chicago. However, he had nerve and a high roller sense of the possible, something Charlie Ruby lacked. Had it not been for his lack of optimism, Charlie Ruby might have been the founder of National Airlines. There are those who hint that his long animosity toward Baker and vice versa stemmed from this. When the post office department opened the airmail routes for bidding after the cancellation crisis of 1934, Ted Baker jumped in. Charlie Ruby's great mistake was that he was too practical. A wealthy friend offered to stake Ruby's bid on the route that Baker later developed into NAL. John Thompson was a Midwestern businessman who wintered in Florida. He owned one of Walter Beach's travel airs, but since he wasn't much of a pilot, Thompson went in search of one. He found Ruby, and over the next few years, they became friends. From 1931 to 1934, Ruby flew John Thompson and his wife all over the country in all kinds of weather. In the process, Charlie became a proficient, self-taught instrument pilot. He also understood the economics of the aviation business too well to undertake the risks 
Ted Baker unblinkingly accepted. The initial post office contracts were awarded to bidders whose low initial proposals were simple gambles, like the Braniff brothers and other small bidders for mail contracts in 1934. Baker was prepared to eat his losses initially, hoping that the government would rescue him later by raising the mail subsidy. Charlie Ruby refused to take the gamble, so he turned down John Thompson's offer of financial support. With that, National would become Ted Baker's airline, not Charlie Ruby's. Ruby went to work for Ted Baker at the beginning leaving the full-time employ of John Thompson. While flying for him, Ruby had met Dave Banky, but the idea of joining ALPA held no attraction for Ruby at first. As essentially a corporate pilot, Ruby had nothing to gain from ALPA. Nor was ALPA particularly active among National's first group of pilots. There were only four of them. But the early National Airline pilots knew about ALPA, and as their employment conditions failed to improve along with the airline's fortunes, they became eager converts. Charlie Ruby's long involvement with ALPA reached a climax during the 1948 National Airlines strike. As Master Executive Council Chairman, Ruby was in almost daily contact with Banky. The heavy press coverage of that bitter dispute made his name well-known throughout ALPA. In fact, Banky offered the newly created post of executive vice president to Ruby. When the dust finally settled after the strike, Ruby became Baker's chief pilot. From October 1954 until July 1961, Ruby was in management. The fact that he could hold such a position and not fatally damage his standing with Nationals pilots is a tribute to Charlie Ruby's essential fairness. His ability to work with Ted Baker indicated hidden wellsprings of tact and diplomacy beneath Ruby's blunt exterior. The frugality of both Ruby and Baker probably also had something to do with their seven years of harmony. In 1962, when the delegates to the ALPA convention in Miami Beach began searching for a Stop John Carroll candidate, Charlie Ruby emerged as the logical choice. He was an authentic expert with management experience. He had a high name recognition factor among pilots and a demonstrated ability to manage money, and he had brought the feuding at National Airlines to an end. He seemed to have all the qualifications for the ALPA presidency. Ruby's election was accepted by the Carroll forces because they thought it was temporary. There was a wide assumption that Ruby was merely an interim candidate who would be content to serve a single term, leaving office in 1966. But another factor in Ruby's election to the ALPA presidency requires elaboration. Today, everybody knows that the airline a pilot works for is largely a matter of accident. But in the old days, there were real differences among the pilots of each airline. Pat Patterson of United Airlines and Juan Tripp of Pan Am 
both ran relatively aristocratic operations. That is, they liked their pilots to be ex-military, preferably with college degrees. Eastern Airlines's Eddie Rickenbacker, considering his own limited formal education, never made an issue over his pilot's non-flying background. And the American Airlines and TWA managements were even less interested in their pilots' extraneous qualifications. Down the scale from there, the backgrounds of each airline's pilots became more mixed. For example, Capital Airlines, before its merger with United, had the reputation for hiring pilots from hard-scrabble backgrounds, the kind who had learned the trade by hanging around airports as kids, trading odd jobs for occasional hops. The same could be said of National, Braniff, and other airlines that had slid into the airline business after the airmail crisis of 1934. Petty jealousies, often based on intangible factors, were a source of disunity in Alpa's early history. Moving Banky to preach his Band of Brothers sermon frequently. After World War II, these differences between pilot groups began to evaporate, since airlines like Trans Texas and Southern Airlines were as likely to have a 40 mission bomber pilot with a Harvard degree as were Continental and Delta. But Alpa's political structure meant that internal division between pilot groups would be a long-term problem. Put simply, a pilot representing a large airline carried more weight and authority at an Alpa convention than did the pilot of a small airline. So the divisions between the various pilot groups lingered, as deep-seated rivalries tend to do, exacerbated by the lower pay and lower prestige that the pilots of smaller airlines suffered because of the equipment they flew. But, in a curious way, the sheer voting strength of the large airlines worked against them in 1962 and helps to explain Charlie Ruby's election. The pilot groups of major airlines have tended towards a certain parochial distrust of the pilots of other majors, fearing them as competition. This distrust opened the way for the pilots of small airlines to play balance-of-power politics. In 1962, this factor worked to Charlie Ruby's advantage. The American Airlines pilots long accustomed to being either the largest or next-to-largest group in ALPA, went down a rung after the merger of United and Capital in 1961. The merged pilot group now far outnumbered the American Airlines pilots, and the mutual antagonisms of these groups made it unlikely that the leader of any other major group, such as TWA's John Carroll, would be able to command the votes of either one. Suppose the TWA and American Airlines group unified to freeze out the United Airlines group, denying them a fair share of power in ALPA. It was a worrisome prospect. So the pilots of the regional airlines would be able to broker the convention, 
provided they could unite at least one major airline behind a candidate from one of the smaller trunks. When the Eastern Airlines Group moved to Ruby, under the prodding of Jerry Wood and Slim Babbitt, the Pan Am pilots fell into line also, partly because of the strong support of the influential Grant LaRoe and partly because of the PAA Group's distrust of both United and American. Their distrust of TWA went without saying. The votes of Eastern and Pan Am, both large airlines, along with those of the small airlines, were nearly enough to put Charlie Ruby over the top. National Airlines threatened nobody because, although technically a major, it wasn't much larger than some of the regional airlines. A smattering of support for Ruby at TWA and United was all it took to seal his victory. Next time on Flying the Line, the election of ALPA President Charles Ruby, a seemingly status quo leader, brings reform and new ideas to the association, challenging what some members think their union's purpose should be. This has been part one of chapter 20 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright, Alpa 2020. All rights reserved.